If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. was not a peasant's revolt. I don't know about you, but for me that sort of conjures up a Monty Python-esque image of baying mobs of ignorant, rag-clad sons of soil, wielding pitchforks and committing indiscriminate acts of violence against people and property. But in fact, the rebels came from every social background that you can imagine. That was Juliet Barker talking about the peasant's revolt in a lecture she delivered at last year's History Weekend Festival. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of February 2015. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In October of last year, we held our second History Weekend Festival in Malmesbury, Wiltshire. Among the speakers was Juliet Barker, a historian and writer who has authored books on Agincourt and the English Kingdom in France, among other subjects. Her most recent book is about the Peasants' Revolt, and that was the topic that she spoke about at the History Weekend. So let's head over to our lecture marquee in Malmesbury to hear what she had to say. Having attended last night's event um, with Harry Sidebottom and Tom Holland, I understand that there's now a competition between authors to prove that no matter how remote the historical subject, it's actually still extraordinarily relevant for today's history. Well, I think my subject's even more relevant than theirs. So here's my pitch. A political class perceived as out of touch and self-serving. Punitive taxation frittered away on pointless foreign wars. Repressive labour legislation and wage control at home, though not for MPs. A disaffected population feeling powerless, voiceless, angry and ripe for recruitment by radicals, both politicians and preachers, offering a vision of a new political and social order. Not to mention a deadly disease of apocalyptic proportions spreading uncontrollably across the world and threatening to invade our shores. Well, as you've probably guessed, that's, although that's a description, a pretty good description of Britain today, it's actually a description of England in 1381. So Tom and Harry, I think I win. <laughs> but there's something about the Peasants' Revolt which brings out the horrible histories in me. So I'd like you to indulge me for the moment and imagine yourselves back in the summer of 1381, reading the medieval equivalent of our daily newspapers. And this is how the events of the time would play out in the headlines. 7th of December, 1380. Government bleeds us dry. More taxes on the way. 30th of May, 1381. Enough is enough. Can't pay, won't pay, say Essex poll tax rebels. 10th of June. Riots in Essex and Kent. Government officials attacked. Offices and records burned. 11th of June. Revolting peasants. Thousands march on London. 12th of June. Rebels demand talks with King. 13th of June. King fails to meet rebels for talks. London burns. Rebels torch the Savoy Palace, the HQ of the Knights Hospitaller and the Inns of Court. 14th June. Beheaded. Chancellor and Treasurer murdered by rebels in Tower Horror. Murder and mayhem on London streets. Rebels free prisoners and massacre immigrants. Suffolk Fens Horror. Chief Justice hunted down and killed like an animal. Freedom for all. King caves into rebels and abolishes serfdom. 15th June. Smithfield sensation. What Tyler assassinated in front of the king. 24th June. The government acts at last. Rebellion crushed. 2nd of July. 18 days of freedom over. King reinstates serfdom. And finally, 
in the medieval equivalent of the Daily Mail, house prices unaffected by recent rebellion. <laughs> That's the best reaction I've ever got to that one. <laughs> Well, that's the Peasants' Revolt in a nutshell. And most of us, I think, have heard of the Peasants' Revolt. Revolt. We maybe even have heard of John Ball, Watt Tyler and Jack Straw. We might not know the details, but it's amazing that the Peasants' Revolt is still remembered at all. Because as my silly Daily Mail headline suggests, it achieved nothing at all. Not one of its objectives were gained and nothing changed as a result except that there wouldn't be uh, another government that would dare to try to impose another poll tax for 600 years, and then with a similar results, but not quite as bloody. It's even more extraordinary, I think, that virtually everything we think we know about the Peasants' Revolt is almost entirely wrong. First and foremost, it was not a Peasants' Revolt I don't know about you, but for me, that sort of conjures up a Monty Python-esque image of baying mobs of ignorant, rag-clad sons of soil, wielding pitchforks and committing indiscriminate acts of violence against people and property. But in fact, the rebels came from every social background that you can imagine. And what's more, they weren't all agricultural labourers or even countrymen. There were just as many townsmen involved as there were men from the country. And what's more, they were led by what, it's an anachronism to call them this, but what we might call today the aspirant middle class. So it was people like local office holders, people who were the bailiffs and stewards of great estates, priests and chaplains, artisans and merchants. Even more extraordinarily, it included some local gentry, even, would you believe, some MPs, and even some of those poll tax collectors who'd been busy causing the revolt in the first place. But secondly, it wasn't all about the poll tax. The rebels were united by despair at years and years of bad government. The glory days of Edward III's great victories at Crecy and Poitiers were long gone, as were all the spoils of war which had helped to finance the fighting of those wars. So instead of being able to rely on the plunder and the ransoms that they'd obtained for their financing the wars, what they had to do instead, the government had to do instead, was to impose repeated and heavy taxation for having spent decades without any taxation at all, in Richard's reign, they were paying taxes every single year. And the money was meant to go for the defence of the realm. But instead, people like John of Gaunt and the great princes frittered away all that money, leading expeditions out onto the continent, which looked great, but achieved nothing. And what's more, and what's worse... Those expeditions did not prevent regular French invasions and the burning of coastal towns. I don't know about you, but I was shocked to find that within a week of Edward III's death in 1377, a French fleet arrived on the, on the south coast, invaded, and they were taking prisoners, they were plundering the towns, and they were setting them on fire. And that happens regularly for the next few years. So they're not attacking just the towns, but also shipping. So merchants and fishermen were also at risk of being captured and carried off to France. 
They even carried off the local abbot of one of the places on the south coast who tried to lead a reaction against them. But in addition to all that, there was corruption at every level of society, of every level of government administration, from the county sheriffs right through to the justices of the peace. And the reason being that they weren't paid salaries as we know them today, but they were paid a portion of what they themselves gathered in. So the harder they turned the screws on the local people and the more they screwed out of them, the more they took home because they just passed on what was required to the treasury. But there was another factor too, and that was the arbitrary and punitive burdens of manorial lordship. We forget that medieval society was very hierarchical and all society, basically all landowning, was basically divided into two <coughs> kinds. On one side, there were the freemen and on the other side, there were the bondsmen. That's we're popularly known as serfs. Free land, you looked after, uh, tilled, cultivated um, and paid rents to your landlord. You were subject to his manorial court but you could appeal to the king if you felt that he was being arbitrary. The people who were the bondsmen, the serfs, were not only personally bound to the land and to the lord so that they weren't allowed to leave without his permission or marry without his permission or let their eldest son inherit on their deaths without his permission. And they also um, were hugely, hugely um, milked by their landlords for every bit of money they could screw out of them basically and the problem for the bond land the surf land was that before the black death hadn't been a problem really because there were too many people all wanting those very rare bits of land that came up available and so people were prepared to accept punitive terms but after the black death when something like a third of the population was wiped out landlords had been forced to reduce rents, relax all the labour services they demanded so that instead of saying, right, you must for three days a week, you must fetch and carry for me or cut the harvest, they'd have to say, no, you don't have to do any more or perhaps only one day a week. And they turned a blind eye to unfree tenants acquiring free land. And this was why it was so important because it wasn't as clear cut as free tenants and bond tenants. Many of Free tenants held bond land and many bondsmen held free land. And what happened in the 1370s, this is sort of 20 years down the line after the, after the, the first epidemic of the Black Death, landlords realised that they were losing control of their lands. And so they started to try to reverse all this. And they tried to reimpose controls to squeeze more money and more labour out of their tenants. And the best way of doing that was to claim that they were serfs. So even if a free man held a bond land, you have become a serf. Or that if a bondsman of serf bought a piece of free land, their landlords would take it off them and say, you cannot have that land unless you accept it from us to be held in bond. So there was a huge sense of people feeling that this was very, very unfair. So when the rebels actually got to meet the king and put their demands to him, the poll tax isn't mentioned at all. What they really want is the abolition of personal serfdom, that every man, woman and child in the country should be free. 
They wanted the abolition of bond land so that in future no one would have to perform humiliating personal services to keep their bit of land. Instead, every person who owned land would pay four pence an acre in rent to their landlord. It's very precise, isn't it? They also wanted, and this is something that's often overlooked in the the revolt, again because we think of it as a peasant's revolt, and it's even more extraordinary in many ways, they wanted to abolish all market monopolies and market tolls. In other words, free trade throughout the whole of the kingdom. We don't even have that now. Um, And the other fourth thing, that less important but still important, they wanted the abolition of the aristocratic monopoly on hunting. And the reason for that was because many of the great aristocrats, including many of the great monasteries, had fenced off huge tracts of land, huge areas of forest, where people locally used to go and graze their pigs in the autumn or went in and and used the fields for grazing their cattle, fenced them off to become parks where they alone could go and hunt. And this caused huge hardship and was a source of massive annoyance, as you can imagine. Now, the poll tax isn't completely irrelevant because it's actually the spark which begins the Great Revolt. And I prefer to call it the Great Revolt, though I might forget to do so when I'm talking about it now. But the poll tax isn't unfair in the way that we think it's unfair, because it wasn't an individual flat rate levelled on everybody, regardless of your social status or wealth. It wasn't 12 pence per person. It was actually levied on communities according to the size of their population. And it was levied at the rate of 12 pence a head when it came to the third tax, which, conveniently for exchequer clerks, made one shilling each. It made it really easy to add up. It was much easier than the earlier ones. So if you lived in a village with 200 people, your village owed 200 shillings in poll tax. But the idea was supposed to be, to make it fairer, that the richer people subsidised the poorer. So if you were an agricultural labourer, you might only have to pay fourpence. But your neighbours down the road, your local farmer who'd bought himself a bit more land or an artisan, a craftsman who built up a bit more business, all these people had to pay extra. So they ended up paying 16 pence, 18 pence, sometimes two shillings. So they were paying much more and having to pay for their poorer and sometimes feckless neighbours. So there was huge resentment about that, especially as there was a cap at the top end. The highest amount anybody had to pay was six and eightpence. Even if you were John of Gaunt on an income of sort of £12,000 a year, you still only paid six and eightpence. But it's ironic that this measure that was meant to help the poor instead actually squeezed the middle. So it's that squeezed middle class again. Bear that in mind, Tom and Harry. Because it's the squeezed middle, like the people who'd just done a bit better, worked a bit harder, gathered a bit more land, gathered a bit more business in for themselves. It was those people who had to pay more. And you won't be surprised to find out that they form the greater part of the rebels. I think the sense of grievance was also increased because the poll tax was the most personally intrusive of all medieval taxation. From the moment a poll tax was declared, somebody came round and knocked on your door and wanted to know how many people were living in that house, what their occupation was, and determined how much they would have to pay. 
When not sufficient money came into the Exchequer, the government decided to try again and go and squeeze them all a bit harder. So it sent out extra assessors who went round again and said, come on, you haven't paid enough, pay up more. And then for a third time, because they still hadn't gotten as much money as they had expected to do, they actually sent round these reassessment commissioners who were there to force the local population to cough up their due. And the problem was that the people who were sent round to do this last bit of enforcement were actually those very same local officials, the sheriffs, the justices of the peace, who, as we've already discussed, were highly regarded as being corrupt. So when John Bampton, for instance, turned up at Brentwood on the 30th of May, 1381, and told all the people of the area in Essex that they had not paid enough of their poll tax and they all had to pay more, they all assumed he was there to line his own pocket. Because not only had they already paid their poll tax, they actually had a receipt from John Bampton himself saying that he had uh, received the monies from them. So you can understand why the local people from Essex pursued John Bampton and his companions from the field with bows and arrows. There's another great myth about the Great Revolt, though, and that's it was not the bloodbath and mindless orgy of destruction that it's so often portrayed. Yes, there were horrible acts of mob violence, especially the slaughter of the Flemings, Um, But this happened mainly in London, and basically Londoners have form on this front. Whenever there was any sort of uh, rioting or unease in the capital, they went and murdered Flemings. It was what they did. So it was as much a part and parcel of, of what went on in London as it was connected to the actual revolt. And the fact that the victims include some of the highest ranking officers in both church and state men like the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who just happened to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Treasurer, who just happened to be the prior, the head of the Order of the Knights Hospitaller for the whole of England, (coughs) Scotland and and Wales, um, and the Chief Justice. Um, The fact that there were people like that who were the victims shouldn't overshadow the fact that remarkably few victims were actually killed. And in fact, if you tot it all up, I think that there were fewer people killed during the course of the revolt than were actually executed for taking part in it afterwards. And it shouldn't obscure the other fact, which is equally important, that the victims were all carefully chosen because they had abused their own positions of power. So you get plenty of examples, yes, where sheriffs and justices of the peace are attacked, beaten up, one or two of them are even executed. But on the whole, most of them were not. And all the ones that were perceived as being honest or just doing their job were left completely in peace. This was not a random attack on authority. It was an attack on individuals. And I think that's very important. And perhaps the most remarkable feature of the Great Revolt is this fact that it is highly organised. It's deeply focused And its objectives were limited. And you can see that when you look wherever it happens, what happens is that everybody rises up in a great fury. They go and punish the local official. They either beat him up. Some of them occasionally kill him. Um, And then they seize all his records, 
burn them all in a great bonfire. And then they all go home because they've done what they expected to do. They've done what they wanted to do. And that's it. They finished. So the fact that they simply then return home, I think, tells us something more about how, what their sense of grievance was. But what's most interesting to me is because, for me, people are always more interesting than actual events. Although John Ball and Watt Tyler and Jack Straw are celebrated even today as the leaders of the Great Revolt, in fact, they played a relatively minor role. The Great Revolt is unique because not only is it the first popular rebellion on a great scale, all previous rebellions of this sort of size were led by aristocrats who were out to seize power for themselves, but it also it's the first, and I, I think it's probably the only rebellion to have no single popular leader. Because this wasn't just a revolt about London and Essex and Kent. It was a countrywide revolt, from Bridgewater in the southwest in Somerset to Yorkshire up in the north. We had to have one in Yorkshire, not only in York, but also in Beverley and also in Scarborough. Bet you didn't know there was a peasants' revolt in Scarborough, did you? <laughs> and in each place, a new local leader sprang up from the shadows to direct the revolt in their own locality. And the fact that there were so many of them reveals the depth of feeling across the country which caused the Great Revolt in the first place, but it also made it much harder for the government to suppress. It was no good just to execute Watt Tyler. There were other leaders throughout the country who were going to lead the rebellion. There was the nearest ones I can find for where you are. There was one, a major revolt in Winchester, where 300 people had already attacked the local prior the previous year. Um, but on the, when they heard that the Great Revolt had happened and when they heard that the king had granted these concessions at Mile End, what they did, one of the people who was from Guildford actually came and rode all the way to Winchester and told them. So they all rose up, they rang the bell and they blew the communal horn to summon the townsmen and then they um, um, attacked the royal staple, and they killed the clerk, burned all the records, and then went off to Romsey where they burned all the records of the local Benedictine nunnery. And then they all went home. <laughs> but my favourite story, and it's one I'm sure, I don't know how many of you may have heard this story at all, but it's one that I had no notion of, but it illustrates so clearly to me the type of revolt we're talking about. And it's my favourite story, and it's the story of St Albans. Great Abbey owns and rules the town of St Albans. The, for over a hundred years before the Great Revolt, the townsmen had been trying to get their freedom from the Abbey. And they'd had numerous spats, there'd been riots, there were numerous appeals to the king, and always the Abbey won. And in fact, the, the most oppressive thing that the Abbey did was most landlords allowed you to have a handmill in your own house just to produce enough corn for your own family. If you were into a professional baking or whatever, you had to use the Abbey's mills. You can expect that. Not in St Albans. In St Albans, you were not allowed to have a hand mill. And in the, one of the previous riots that had gone on and the attempts to get freedom, the, the townsmen had had all their hand mills confiscated, taken to the Abbey, broken into pieces, 
and turned into a pavement in the abbey so that the monks could walk up and down on it every day to show that they were in charge. So as you can imagine, that's a very evocative image. But in St Albans, there was a man with a delightful name of William Grindcob, which probably has to be connected to those handmills, doesn't it? But he was a, a townsman, a wealthy townsman. He'd bought an acre of land and the abbey had confiscated it from him because they said, you are not a free man, you cannot own land in your own right. He'd had an argument with some monks and tried to stop them doing something in the town which was clearly exercising their authority. So they'd made him strip naked and walk through the streets and prostrate himself before the altar in the abbey. So they tried their best to humiliate him. But he'd been taught in the abbey school. And this was a man who was clearly intelligent, literate, numerate. I suspect he was probably a lawyer as well. But what's important about Grindcob is that when he heard about the people marching on London, he joined the revolt and he went to Mile End and there he met Richard II and it says that he knelt six times before Richard II and asked for the freedom of the town from the abbot and that the abbot should surrender the charters that he held which proved uh, that the town should be free. Grand Cobb got Richard's authority to do that. And he got a charter saying that all the serfs in the whole of Hertfordshire were to be set free as well. He went back to St Albans carrying his two charters, very proud of his two charters. He went to see the abbot and the abbot could do nothing because Grand Cobb had Richard's authority for doing what he wanted. The abbot tried every means he could to prevent him uh, acquiring the freedom, but in the end he was obliged to draw up new charters which Grand Cobb supervised, freeing the town, freeing the serfs and handing over all those uh, handmills. They dug them all up and took them back into the town. Now, the importance of this is that Grand Cobb had Richard's authority for what he was doing. The whole revolt in St Albans was entirely peaceable. They demolished a couple of buildings. They didn't hurt anybody in the abbey whatsoever. Everybody went unharmed. At Burris St Edmunds, on the other hand, the local townsmen murdered the prior and several monks in the monastery and carried out widespread destruction. But what happened at St Albans was that the abbot had friends in high places and his friend in high places was the new chief justice, Justice Tresillian, who was a real hard liner, a hanging judge of the first water. And he came to St Albans to make an example of the people of St Albans. And so William Grindcob and uh, 14, a fellow townsman, were declared rebels and traitors and they were hanged out in the fields where they had gone to break down the abbot's fences where he had exercised his hunting rights. And 80 other people were also put in prison. In Burris St Edmunds, by contrast, despite the violence of the revolt there... They just paid a whacking great fine and they got off scot-free. So isn't that unfair? Um, I think it's a very sad story. They also had to take all those hand mills back again and they were reburied in the abbey, would you believe? <laughs> um, and I don't know whether you've just eaten, but you might like to know as well that 
Grand Cobb and his fellows, the bodies of the men, were hung from these trees in the fields and they were told that they had to stay there until they rotted and fell off. And somebody in the town took pity on them and he went out and he cut them all down and gave them all a decent burial. And the abbot wasn't having any of that. This man didn't have an ounce of compassion in him. He went to Richard II and he got a writ ordering the bodies to be dug up again by the townsmen and rehung in chains so that they couldn't be removed again. And it wasn't until Queen Anne, Richard married Queen Anne of Bohemia, and she intervened on behalf of the townsmen and arranged that they could have this reburial decently. So the poor old people of St Albans didn't get very far and yet, that was the sort of reaction from authority that they got. Now, William Grand Cobb is just one of their many very unlikely people who would later become defined as rebels. But they'd only acted as they did because they believed, and in William Grand Cobb's case, he actually did have the king's authority to do as they did. And it was Richard's delay in revoking these charters of freedom that drew so many ordinary people who would not otherwise have taken up the standard of revolt into the rebellion. Now, Grand Cobb's moving story is just one of many which shed light on events outside London, which are usually ignored. And what I find fascinating about it as well is that it brings into rare focus ordinary people, the sort of people who are usually beneath the notice of contemporary chroniclers. And what's wonderful about this book is that lots of them feature in it. One of my favourites, Marjorie Starr of Cambridge. She was, uh, when the uh, rebels in Cambridge gathered up the university archives into a great bonfire in Market Square and set fire to them, she danced around the bonfire, singing and chanting, away with the learning of clerks, away with the learning of clerks. I think that's something that some of us could quite sympathise with. Um, there's... A chap called John Ferrer from Rochester. Um, his story is quite extraordinary because he was a rebel in 1381, but he was also a rebel in 1400 when he rebelled against the new king, Henry IV. And he was going to be executed for his part in that rebellion and he was brought before Henry IV and Henry recognised him. And what the text actually says is that Ferrer had saved Henry's life in a wonderful and kind manner when he was in the Tower of London. And this, this is the only source we have which puts Henry Bolingbroke, Richard's cousin, also only 14 years old, like the, the young king, in the Tower of London at this time when the rebels came in and dragged away the Chancellor and Treasurer and executed them. And clearly, Henry Bolingbroke, as he then was, would have been an obvious target for the rebels because he was the son of John of Gaunt, the most hated man in the kingdom. And yet John Ferrer of Rochester intervened and managed to prevent the rebels killing him. And that act was remembered. Another short story, again Cambridge, I don't really know why. Um, John Gibbon was a senior burgess in the town of Cambridge, wealthy man, his uh, young son joined the revolt, came charging in with a crowd of other uh, rebels into the church where Gibbon was worshipping and tried to seize one of the university chests which was kept there. And that was the chest that had all the valuables and the documents in it. Daddy Gibbon decided that uh, 
he had to intervene because he realised his son was going to get into trouble. So he paid them off. He gave them a large sum of money and said, go away, leave it, just go. So they did. Except for they then went to the next church, seized the university chest kept in that church, took that one out, put it onto the marketplace and burnt it so that Marjorie Starr could dance around it. But the point about this story is that when the younger John Gibbon came up for trial, he denied all knowledge of ever having been in that first church. But because the way that the prosecutions worked, where you gave indictments and the evidence was all prepared beforehand, the court had before it his father's evidence that he had come into the church and uh, tried to take the chest. And the trial record actually says that his father gave evidence and on his father's evidence he was hanged, which is extraordinarily sad. But you don't just hear about rebels, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know. You also hear about some of the victims, people like William Setva, who was the sheriff of Kent. He was unfortunate enough to be in Canterbury Castle when the rebels came calling. Rebels led at this stage by Watt Tyler. They came charging in, they seized him, they roughed him up and said, hand over all your records. So he did. They took them all away and burned them in the middle of Canterbury. And then they said, have you got any more hidden anywhere else? And they said, well, I've got some at home. So they frog marched him out to his home on the outskirts of Canterbury and um, seized all those records too and burned them as well. He's so affected by the revolt that not only does he give up his job, he doesn't want to be sheriff of, of Kent anymore. But when he died in 1407, he put a really unusual provision in his will, which I think has to relate to his experiences in the revolt, because he instructed that each and every one of his serfs that worked on his land was to be set free permanently. So... It's a book of two halves. The first half is allegedly a snapshot, but it's actually quite a big snapshot, of what life was really like in medieval England. And it tries to explain the background of how and why the Great Revolt happened. And it's full of all that sort of detail that I just love to find out about. Things like the fact that in medieval London and elsewhere they had public toilets in medieval times, even though they didn't in Tudor times. That tells you a lot about the Tudors. Um, LAUGHTER Things like that Richard II ordered 2,000 new bathroom tiles to tile his bathroom. Did you know that Richard was pernickety about cleanliness? He's supposed to have invented the spoon and he also is alleged to have invented the pocket handkerchief. But it's mainly about ordinary people and the experience of ordinary people living in towns and in countryside as well. The second half of the book is an account of the actual revolt itself. What happened, where, when and why. So I don't know about you, but for me, the events of the Great Revolt are very dramatic and they're certainly exciting at points. But I confess that actually for me, it's the previously untold stories of these real people which brings the past to life for me. So it's a privilege and a pleasure to have been able to do that, I think. And I hope that you will enjoy reading the book as much as I've actually enjoyed writing it. Thank you very much. That was Juliet Barker. Juliet's book, England Arise, The People, The King and The Great Revolt of 1381, is available now, published by Little Brown. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Now, if you've enjoyed our live events in the past, or would like to experience one for the first time, then why not come along to one or both of our two theme days next month? On the 21st and 22nd of March, we're holding a Magna Carta and a Waterloo Day. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from a selection of expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. The tickets are selling fast for both events, so if you are keen to attend, I'd advise you to get your tickets soon. I should also remind you that our February issue is currently on sale. In this month's edition, we explore the history and global legacy of Magna Carta as it approaches its 800th anniversary. We discover how Britain became entangled in the Vietnam War and we explore the hidden stories of British soldiers captured by Germany in the First World War. You can pick up our February issue now in all good news agents and digitally. And that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be discussing the history of illegitimacy and the life of John Maynard Keynes. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.